Well, I want to invite you to turn with me again to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 as we continue our sermon series through the book of 1 Thessalonians. Um, this month, as we're in 1 Thessalonians 5 and moving kind of slowly through this chapter, we are learning some important lessons about these, especially about these two themes of ministry to one another in the church and this related theme of prayer toward God. Today, we will pay attention to this issue of spirituality or spiritual life in the church. As you're turning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, I'll remind you of a story that we can read in Luke chapter 10, which tells us that one day Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And Martha had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to Jesus's teaching. But Martha, the first sister, Martha was distracted with much serving, the scripture says. And she went up to Jesus and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. And Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Think about this story through Martha's eyes, through the eyes of the first sister for just a moment. If you're Martha, then you know Jesus. And if you're Martha in Luke 10, then Jesus is here. He's present. He's in the room. He's talking right now today. This is your time with Jesus. But if you're Martha, what does your time with Jesus feel like? If you're Martha, first of all, you feel anxious. Maybe it's sweaty palms and a fast heart rate. Maybe it's just that inner anxiety, that inner drive that says something has to get done right now. Pulling you away from your time with Jesus. If you're Martha, you feel anxious and you also feel deeply distracted by a lot of things that need to get done. Maybe even good things that need to get done. Maybe you're focused on meeting everybody else's expectations in your life. Or focused on meeting your own expectations for yourself. Maybe you're worried because other people really do depend on you. And if you don't get things done for others, who will get it done? And then if you're Martha, you see your sister Mary... She's not helping with the work that you're anxious about and distracted by. She's resting peacefully while you're working busily. 
She's making different choices than you are. How dare she? Maybe it's a moment of jealousy. Maybe it's a moment of self-righteous superiority. Whatever it is, it boils over in a moment of outrage toward your sister in the presence of Jesus. And if you're in Martha's shoes, what does your time with Jesus feel like? If you're in Martha's shoes, your time with Jesus feels anxious and distracted, busy and perhaps self-righteously outraged. So much so that you begin to shout at Jesus as if he is here today mainly to help you win a fight with your sister. And if some of us in this room are silently judging Martha right now, you might be missing the point. In what ways might Martha's experience in the presence of Jesus be like a mirror of your own experience in the presence of Jesus? Even as we gather together today in the presence of Jesus, some of us are feeling too busy, too anxious, Maybe just too maxed out. Maybe too bothered by simmering outrage about your sister or your brother who has made different choices than you have. And as a result, perhaps some of us in our anxiety and our busyness, even right now today, in the presence of Jesus, we're missing the one thing that really matters most. Here's my question. In a chaotic world of distractions and worries, and in a chaotic world of exhaustion and outrage, how do we learn a healthy spiritual life? Today we're continuing our sermon series in 1 Thessalonians, which is one of the oldest letters in the New Testament. And as we've said throughout this series, one of the wonderful things about 1 Thessalonians is it gives us a kind of picture of Christianity at its core, basic Christianity. And as we read these simple directions, a series of little directions here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18, we're going to listen in to... We're going to listen into these directions for basic Christian practices, ancient and original Christian practices that God has given us to shape healthy spiritual life, even while we live in a chaotic world. Look with me, if you would, at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 16. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for y'all. 
for us together as Jesus' people. You want to know what God's will is for our church family? You want to know what God's vision is for congregations of believers around the world and across the centuries? You want to know God's will for us? However chaotic life in this world may be, listen, until Christ returns, God's will for us as His church is that we would center our lives on Him. On knowing, following, loving Him. The one thing that matters most. Until Christ returns, this is God's will for us as a church. This is God's will for us as believers. That we would center our lives on Him. And toward that end, 1 Thessalonians 5 gives us these three basic Christian practices for spiritual life in a chaotic world. Three disciplines, if you will. The first Christian practice that this gives us is the practice of rejoicing. Rejoice in the Lord, verse 16 says, or rather rejoice always, verse 16 says. Notice it doesn't just say have an emotion. It gives us something to do. Rejoicing is not just an emotional state that we experience when our circumstances are good. And when our circumstances lead us to feel happy, rejoicing is an activity that we choose to engage in whether our circumstances are happy or not. And so this passage says, not rejoice when circumstances are good. Rather, it says, make a decision to be a rejoicing people. Always. In the happier times and the harder times alike. Paul was one of the authors of this letter of 1 Thessalonians, right? Along with his missionary teammates, Silas and Timothy. And Paul knew a great deal of hardship in his own life. Think, for example, about that experience of personal pain and suffering in his life that he described as a thorn in his flesh. We don't even know precisely what this was. A difficult relationship, maybe? A physical ailment, perhaps? But here's what we do know about this thorn in the flesh, painful experience that Paul had in his own life. We know, first of all, that Paul asked and asked and asked the Lord for this painful experience to be removed from his life. But it was not removed. And we know secondly that whatever this experience was. It left Paul physically weakened. In a condition of weakness. Some of us perhaps can relate with something like that. Or think maybe for a moment about the betrayals. That Paul experienced from other Christians. You can go and read about that in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Even other believers turned away. Or think about the painful experience that Paul had of seeing former teammates in the mission make shipwreck of their faith. Or 
Or think about the times that Paul and his missionary team, even in the city of Thessalonica, experienced intense persecution on account of their association with Jesus. Listen, Paul was under no delusions about life being peaceful and easy for him or for any of the members of the congregation. He's writing this letter and saying, rejoice always, knowing Jason is there in the room. Jason, who got dragged off to court less than a year earlier as a part of the as a part of the persecution there in Thessalonica, he's writing this letter to a congregation full of people knowing that some of them are experiencing physically weakening circumstances themselves. He's writing this letter to them knowing the full range of hardships that Christians experience throughout the course of the normal Christian life. And yet, and yet the missionary team says, here's our vision for you while you live in this chaotic and sometimes weakening and sometimes painful world. God's will for you is that in all of those circumstances, you would continue to make this choice. Not to get dragged down into those circumstances, but to keep your gaze fixed on him throughout those circumstances and so rejoice. And so praise his name. And so, and so rejoice in the Lord, which is how Paul makes a similar claim in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice not in your circumstances, rejoice in the Lord. You see, Christian rejoicing is not living in denial of the harsh realities of the world around us. Rather, it's living in light of the truth of a greater reality. It's living in light of the truth, the redemptive truth, that Jesus is Lord. Christian rejoicing is rooted in something every bit as real. I might even say, if I could, something more profoundly real than the sufferings we experience. It's rooted in the fact that Jesus loved us and gave himself for us to deliver us from the wrath of God that is to come. Christian rejoicing is rooted in the fact that Jesus rose again that we might live forevermore with him. Christian rejoicing is rooted in Jesus' promise. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Christian rejoicing is rooted not in the ups and downs of our circumstances, but in the rock-solid assurance that we have that Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead with glory before He makes all things new again. Christian rejoicing is not based in the ups and downs of our circumstances across the weeks or the months. Christian rejoicing is rooted in this unchanging truth. Jesus is Lord. And that's why when we gather and we sing, we sing songs that say things like, Friends may fail me, foes assail me, That He is with me to the end. Hallelujah. What a Savior. 
Hallelujah, what a friend. That's what it sounds like when Christians rejoice in the Lord. It's not ignoring the realities of our circumstances. Rather, it's keeping our eyes on Him throughout our circumstances. And until Christ returns, God's will for us as His church is that we would be joyful people. Not because circumstances are going to get easier and easier. But because the truths of the gospel will never fail us. No matter how hard or weighty circumstances may be. Choosing to rejoice in the Lord as we gather Sunday by Sunday. I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way before. Is an act of defiance. Against the powers of darkness. Gathering together on Sundays and choosing to proclaim out loud. You know, the New Testament talks about worship together in the family of faith. Not just as doing it for God's sake, but singing the truth to one another. And when we gather and we sing the truth across the room to one another... And with our hearts engaged when we proclaim His praises out loud with our voices, this is an act of defiance against the powers of darkness, against death itself, against sin and evil. And so what 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 16 is calling us to is it's calling us to engage in a Christian practice that shapes us as joyful people. What is it that shapes us as joyful people? It's choosing to rejoice in the Lord always. That's a first Christian practice that we see here in this text, but there's more. A second basic Christian practice for spiritual life in a chaotic world, is praying. More specifically, verse 17 says, pray without ceasing. And I think when I was in junior high, um, I had this idea that to pray without ceasing meant that I couldn't focus fully on my math. I don't think that's what the words themselves mean. And I certainly don't think that's God's intention for us. The point is not that you can't focus your brain on the math test in front of you. The point is not that you're sinning against God if you focus your attention on a household project. The point is certainly not that you are sinning against God if you take time to listen attentively to that teenager in your household. It's not saying that we need to have this kind of unbroken experience of talking with God without the slightest distraction, without even slightly paying attention to something else. That's not what the direction is. To pray without ceasing doesn't mean you can't ever focus on anything else, but it does mean that prayer is meant to be relentless, which is very different than the way that kind of our culture thinks about prayer. Think for just a minute about the pictures you've seen of prayer in movies or TV or Netflix or whatever. Most of the time that we see prayer depicted in movies, TV, videos, whatever, most of the time when we see prayer depicted, it works kind of like this. There's a crisis moment. 
And in the middle of that one specific crisis moment, after everything else has been attempted, an individual will stumble into a sanctuary, maybe kind of like this one, or maybe more beautiful like a Catholic one with stone walls and stained glass all around. And that individual will fold his or her hands and say, God, if you're up there, I'm not normally a praying person. But I could sure use some help this time. And then all of a sudden the music starts playing and the scene fades and everything works out just fine. And the person goes on with her life or his life seeking to fix the problems on his or her own, right? This is how our our culture pictures this issue of prayer. It's something that you only do when you've tried everything else and it's all failed. It's something you do only in moments of desperation. And it's something that will either produce a quick fix with sweet music in the background, or else you can count it as having failed. Prayer according to God's word is very different than that. Prayer, as the New Testament pictures it, is more of a lifestyle. It's a way of living. It's not just something we do once in a while at our most desperate moments. It's how the Christian life begins. It's how the Christian life continues. And it's the whole goal of the Christian life itself. In fact, there's something kind of pictured of that in this letter of 1 Thessalonians. You may remember way back at the beginning of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2, this letter begins with these words that Jason Mead preached about a few months ago. We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers. This letter begins with constant prayer. And then right in the middle of this letter, in a passage that Michael Van Heist preached a couple of months ago in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 11, we read, we read the missionary team now praying again. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may, uh, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, dot, dot, dot. And then this letter will end in a couple of weeks. We'll get there in our sermon series. And Matt Vent will preach from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 through 25. The end of this letter. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Why do you think the missionary team models prayer at the beginning, the middle, and the end of this letter? Maybe it's because they realized how essential prayer is, not just as a sporadic experience in the Christian life, but perhaps they realized how essential prayer is as a way of life for those who follow Jesus. Prayer is the beginning, the middle, and the end of this letter. And in the same way, prayer is the beginning, the middle, and the end of the Christian life. Prayer is like the soundtrack of the Christian life. It's like our way of breathing. 
the whole of the Christian life, by design, is a school of prayer. Why? I'm going to speculate here, but maybe in part because this is the end for which the world was created. Knowing God. Living close, living in close fellowship with him. To the glory of his name, to the ends of the earth. This is the end for which the world was created. This is the end toward which we're all headed. And in these little moments, like when Travis comes and leads us in praying, or in these little moments when you get together with your community group and you spend an extended amount of time praying for the nations and praying for our community and praying for our church and just praying for one another in life, These are kind of in miniature a picture of the point of the whole thing. This is why Christ died on the cross for our sins. Not only so that we would feel less guilty, but so that the curtain would be torn in two. So that we can draw near and live close to Him. To the glory of His name, to the ends of the earth. And even when, even when you sit down tomorrow morning, I hope, I don't say it like in a judgy way, all right, but like sometime I hope that you'll sit down with your Bible open and you'll listen to God's word and you'll use God's word as a springboard to start talking back to God sometime tomorrow. You know what that is? It's a little tiny miniature version. It's broken, it's fallen, it's so not perfect. Which is a little tiny miniature version of the end for which God created the world. Living in fellowship with Him. Living in close fellowship with Him. To the glory of His name. To the ends of the earth. What a profound privilege. No wonder, no wonder the New Testament doesn't say when you really, really need help. And when you've called all your friends and you've tried all your best shots and there's nothing left to do, stumble into a sanctuary somewhere and just say a prayer. The New Testament's idea of the Christian life is that we would pray relentlessly. We would pray without ceasing. I wonder why prayer is so hard then for us. Prayer is beautiful. And I'm very sensitive to the fact that um, I just kind of understand one of the easiest things for a teacher to do is to lead people with a soft heart. And I hope you have a soft heart. One of the easiest things for a teacher to do is to lead people with a soft heart to feel guilty for not praying enough. I don't want to play into that scheme of the enemy. I hope that I'll challenge and encourage you to pray more. I hope more specifically that the voice of God's Spirit speaking through His Word will stir in you some longing, some thirst, some relish, some taste 
for praying more and living a lifestyle of prayer. I hope for that. But I also want to ask this question, why is prayer so hard for us? I have an observation that I found that was helpful for me at one point this last year. Got me thinking about some things and my own need to grow in my own prayer life. And so I want to share this observation with you. It goes like this. If you're anything like me, when you get over busy, the things that are truly life-giving for your soul are the first things to go rather than your first go-to, such as a quiet time in the morning, Scripture, prayer, Sabbath, worship on Sunday, a meal with your community, and so on. Because in an ironic catch-22, the things that make for rest, actually take a bit of energy and self-discipline. When we get over busy, we get over tired, and we don't have the energy or discipline to do what we need most for our souls. And then, repeat, the cycle begins to feed off its own energy. So instead of life with God, we settle for life with a Netflix subscription which is a very poor substitute, not because time wasted on TV is the great Satan, but because we rarely get done binge watching anything or posting to social media or overeating five guys, burgers and fries or whatever it is. We rarely get done binge watching anything and feel awake and alive from the soul outward, rested, refreshed and ready for a new day. We delay the inevitable, which is an emotional crash. And as a consequence, we miss out on the life-giving sense of the withness, the nearness, the presence of God. I wonder if this rings a bell as a little bit accurate for some others in this room as it did for me. When life gets over busy, the things that are truly life-giving are the first to go rather than my first go-to. How about you? Listen, God's will is that we would be a praying church. But there's no point in talking about being a praying church if we're not praying people. And there's no point in talking about being praying people if we're not praying disciples of Jesus. And so how about you? In the quiet of your own household this morning, what would keep you from finding some moments to just read prayer and reflect a little bit and then begin talking to God on the basis of what you've read? As you're driving around town, because most of us spend way too much time in a car. As you're driving around town, what would keep you from using those moments in quiet to continue a conversation with God and to experience another taste of His withness right there in your car? When you think about having a hard conversation that you've been dreading and You kind of are tempted to just fret about it and fret about it and fret about it and become more and more frustrated. What would keep you from drawing near to God and pouring out your heart before Him? 
in your own life, what would keep you from pursuing the withness, the nearness, the presence of God in prayer? We haven't even talked about one of the coolest things about prayer. It not only changes us, it changes the world. According to Jesus. And that's why as individuals and together as a congregation, I hope that we continue to grow as praying people. Not just people who have a prayer for a few minutes on Sunday morning. Not just people who close our meetings with prayer. I'm not opposed to any of these things, by the way. You get what I'm saying, right? Not just people who say a prayer before a meal. I love saying prayers before meals. You hear what I'm saying, right? But not just these things. I hope that as 2021 continues and as 2021 turns into 2022, that as disciples, we become praying people more and more. And I hope that our community groups become praying community groups more and more. Little miniature Schools of prayer where we're learning together. I hope our Sundays feel more and more like a house of prayer. God's will for us as his people. Even though we live in a chaotic world. God's will for us. Not our vision for ourselves. It's not what we drew up on the whiteboard and said this is what we want to do. God's will for us is that we would be praying people. It's a second practice, a second habit, a second discipline that we are called to as the people of God in a chaotic world. And there's a third here as well. I won't spend quite quite as long on it. It says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. Give thanks. Giving thanks is our third direction here in this passage. This is where we want to kind of roll our eyes and say, yeah, 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 I know I should be more grateful. Pumpkin spice lattes just appeared. Yeah, 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 I know I should be more grateful. I've got a wonderful home to live in. Yeah, 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 I know I should be more grateful. The weather is nice. And sure, I would encourage you to be grateful for pumpkin-spiced anything. And I would encourage you to be grateful for God's provision of a home. And I love to give thanks to God while I'm walking outside on a beautiful fall day. But I want to suggest to you that this verse is calling us to something more than simply being people who like pumpkin spice lattes and nice houses and nice weather. Christian gratefulness, you might be surprised to discover, was actually one of the most distinctive Christian virtues in the first century. It's interesting that in the city of Thessalonica, everybody prayed. There's nothing unique about Christians saying we're praying people. Everybody prayed. Some people brought their chickens to the idol to to pray for success of their business. Some people brought other things to the idol of family and worshipped there and prayed for God's fertility blessings. Some people brought things to the idol of seafaring so that they wouldn't, you know, so that they wouldn't drown out at sea. Everybody prayed in the city. In the ancient world, most 
people were very interested in the topic of joy. They defined it in different ways and they didn't seek it in the Lord. There's nothing particularly countercultural about seeking joy or saying prayers in Thessalonica. But nobody was talking about gratefulness in the way Christians were talking about gratefulness in those days. Which makes me ask, why? It's often been observed that Paul's letters mention the theme of thanksgiving. Paul's letters mention the theme of gratefulness line for line more often than any other piece of literature from the ancient world. Christian, pagan, whatever. Nobody else talked about gratefulness as much as these guys did. Why? I think the answer is because the kind of gratefulness they were talking about was a kind of gratefulness that others could only imagine. A kind of gratefulness which was for something more than tasty foods and a nice house and, a, and happy weather. The kind of gratefulness that they were talking about was something more than business success or a growing family. The kind of gratefulness that they were talking about Christian gratefulness was a matter of giving thanks to God in the context of the story of redemption. You say, that sounds interesting. Where do you see that? Look with me, if you would, back at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 for a second. For those of you who are falling asleep, I just ask you to turn in your Bible. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Um, I'm teasing you. Um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2. We give thanks to God always For all of you. Now, here's one interesting thing to notice about Christian gratefulness. It's very often for specific people. Real, concrete people with real names, just like the real people here in this room, right? Christian gratefulness is often expressed for real people. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and your labor of love and steadfastness of hope. In our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. We just let that sink in for a minute. If we are people who understand that God's love has been poured out on other people here in this room in such a way that He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we might be adopted as sons and daughters together with Jesus Christ, that we might share in His inheritance forevermore. If we really believe this stuff, what are we going to do? We're going to give thanks. And not just for pumpkin spice lattes and nice houses and sweet weather. We're going to give thanks in a profound kind of way that says I'm adopted together with Jesus Christ. I'm united with Him and I share His inheritance forever. Thank God. And the description goes on in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Verse 9, maybe you can pick up down there. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. How you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. To wait for His Son 
from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. If we believe this stuff is not just interesting words from an ancient myth. If we believe this is the description of what's really to come. The judgment of God against evil and sin, which we've all participated in one way or another. And yet we also believe that this is true, that Jesus, through his sacrifice on our behalf, has delivered us from the wrath to come. And brought us from serving fake dead deities to knowing the true and living God. And having the hope of living near to Him forever. If we believe that this stuff is true, what's that going to create? It's going to create a kind of gratefulness which would be baffling to people who think that gratefulness is just about having a good pumpkin spice latte and a nice house and a sweet day of weather. Why were the early Christians so emphatic about giving thanks? In short, the early Christians were counterculturally grateful because they understood and cherished the gospel of Jesus Christ. How about you? How about us? Is there something counterculturally grateful bubbling up in our midst? So this is one of the things that we can pray for each other for. And we can pray for in our households and we can pray for in our Sunday gatherings and we can pray for as fruit in our small group meetings that we would walk away giving thanks to God through Christ Jesus our Lord for the hope that we have together with Him. These are three practices from the ancient church Three practices which God, by His Spirit, gives to us to shape us into profoundly God-centered people. A call to rejoice, always. A call to pray without ceasing. A call to keep on giving thanks in all kinds of circumstances. Why? Because of Jesus. How about us? We were talking earlier about Martha, busyness, the distractedness. The busyness with serving, the seething anger toward her sister. We were talking about Martha's experience in the presence of Jesus, but we didn't pay a lot of attention to Jesus. In her experience in the presence of Jesus. And I wonder if God by his spirit is speaking to some of us in a similar way to how Jesus spoke to Martha that day. Which wasn't a word of mere rebuke. I say mere rebuke because there was a purpose in it, right? When Jesus said, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Let me ask you, what is Jesus doing there? 
Listen, the one who would ultimately give his life so that the curtain would be torn in two to bring us back to God. He is not merely chastising Martha in that moment. He's inviting her. He's inviting her to build her life around the one thing that matters most. Him. And in a similar way, I think this passage of Scripture, rejoice always, even with the really heavy stuff that some of you are going through right now. Pray without ceasing, which calls us to grow in the school of prayer and not just coast through the school of prayer. Give thanks in every kind of circumstance with a countercultural kind of gratefulness. As we hear these calls to these Christian practices of rejoicing and prayer and giving thanks, as we hear these calls, I hope that we will hear the voice of our Lord himself calling us and saying, Josh, Josh, Katie, Katie, fill in your name, fill in your name. I hope we hear the voice of our Lord calling us, not simply or not merely or not only with a word of rebuke, but with an invitation that says, come to me and I'll give you rest. This passage, in this passage, the one who gave his life to bring us back to God, he is inviting us to devote ourselves to these practices of rejoicing and praying and gratefulness so that we can participate in the eternal joy of knowing and loving 